Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. The other hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the latest um, episode of The Other Hand. Uh, greetings from a snowy Dublin. Happy uh, St. David's Day. And, to, of course, happy St. David's Day to you as well, okay? Uh, sorry how remiss of me to forget that. Chris, I just want to start by talking about the Irish GDP data that was published today. It was quarter four data for 2023 and the estimate then for the full year. So I'll talk more about the full year piece. Um, no major surprises, but it shows again uh, the intricacies of Irish growth data and the need for very careful interpretation. Um, gross domestic product contracted by 3.2% for the full year. And indeed, we saw four successive quarters of negative growth in GDP during the year, uh, which technically is an economy in recession. But then modified domestic demand, which is the measure of sort of underlying domestic economic activity, up by 0.5%. And the two middle quarters of last year saw positive growth. So under that metric, the economy didn't enter recession. Um, Looking at the components, uh, no major surprises, consumer spending on goods and services for the year up by 3.1%. And that takes consumer spending now to 10.2% above the pre-pandemic peak in 2019 of consumer spending. So there has just been a massive rebound in the consumer side of the economy. No major surprises there, to be honest. Exports of goods and services last year down by 4.8%. And we know where that's come from. We've discussed it ad nauseum over recent months about the ongoing decline, particularly in the exports in the chemical and pharmaceutical sector. But it's that decline in the export performance that is the reason for the technical recession or the contraction in GDP that we're talking about. And indeed, Output from the multinational sector fell 6.8% last year, whereas output from the rest of the economy was up by 3.8%. And finally, 
compensation of employees was up by 3.3% last year. So in a nutshell, Chris, I'm throwing out as usual a lot of statistics, but uh, I, I think the key message there really is that the underlying weakness in the economy is being caused by that ongoing correction in the export sector. Um, and the exports of a particular sector yes. rather than generalised. Indeed, and yeah. So it's not anything to get too worried about, but given that it is the international sector, if you like, or the multinational sector of the economy, one bit of it that's showing weakness, it is perhaps a straw in the wind, a small warning. It might have very specific circumstances, which mean we shouldn't get too worried about it. But it shows you what can happen when that foreign sector does start to face headwinds. And that should that become generalized, that would become a big problem. But it's not one at the moment. Uh, no, it's not, Chris. And I mean, this decline in exports, for example, is consistent with the slight decline, the 4% decline we saw in employment in companies supported by the IDA last year, which we spoke about in the past. So, um, you know, o o overall, um, not a lot to be concerned about here, but I agree with you, actually. Um, it is a little bit of a sort of wake up and, you know, watch this because it just it does just show, as you say, how important that part of the economy is. Um, we got this morning the Purchasing Managers Index for Manufacturing Activity in Ireland uh, jumped from 49.5 to 52.5. So that's the first time in six months that it actually has gone, I think it has, it has gone into, at least six months, it has gone into positive territory. So that's a positive uh, indicator of activity. So, you know, we're two months into the year now. And uh, car sales to the end of February are up about 12.5%, although the growth has decelerated in recent weeks, particularly in the sales of electric vehicles. We have this purchasing managed index that's strong. So, and, and I just detect generally it's an economy that's still doing reasonably, but not dramatically well. Um, and, and anecdotally, it's clear, uh, for example, that the you know, the construction sector is still incredibly busy. Um, restaurants, some restaurants are struggling. Some parts of the retail sector are struggling. Uh, but overall, I would give the economy a reasonably um, positive state of health at this early stage of the year. And, now, Jim, you know, I know you want yeah. to go on to talk about other economic data from around the world. But because what I'm about to say is totally linked to what you've just said if you don't mind i'm going to jump in and talk about uh, an event that i spoke at last night actually in london and it was an irish financial institution launching themselves in the uk it's an organization involved in the, in the financing of startup companies essentially uh, putting it probably a little simplistically and a lot of uh, the irish diaspora were there at this event and it was fascinating from a whole host of perspectives to listen to what they had to say not just because they were listening to me spouting on about the state of the world and I could say quite a lot actually and take up most of this podcast with the, with the things that I learned from these people as you always do at these events it's marvelous to interact with people who are operating at the coalface and this particular coalface is extremely vibrant in London. That's the ecosystem around startups, early stage companies, and their financing. And the reason why I raise it here is that something that we've both said before is that 
Whereas the foreign multinational sector of the Irish economy has been a fabulous story, remains a fabulous story, and we all hope that that's how it stays going forward and hopefully even built on. We've got to hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And the, 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 the slight, very small warning from what happens to one sector when it faces headwinds that you talked about there means that we, I think, should prepare for more generalised headwinds should they emerge. And we know where they can come from. They can come out of a clear blue sky. They can come out of all of the moves to alter the global taxation of these companies. For example, the famous uh, taxation questions controversy around um, these multinational companies. And one way to prepare for these companies is for these headwinds is to encourage domestic Irish industry. And I just wanted to flag that, you know, this was an event that's doing precisely that. It's encouraging investment in early stage Irish companies. And I was surprised by how flourishing the ecosystem is in Ireland as well, to just to talk to people. It's hard to get a handle on how big it actually is, whether it's big enough, whether we're doing enough, but it certainly exists in a bigger way than I thought. And I, and I came away qu quite encouraged, actually. There are, there are loads of companies around who are employing people, real businesses, employing hundreds, not necessarily thousands of people. But uh, I think that the uh, startup culture, the entrepreneurial culture that is present in Ireland is is surprisingly encouraging. And I think the policy imperative is to just do more of it and do whatever organisations such as Enterprise Ireland, for example, and anything else that the, the authorities can do to encourage this should, should only be welcomed. And um, for its own sake, it's important to encourage all aspects of the economy. But I think the strategic imperative of being ready, just in case the international sector flags with something uh, of an Irish economy that is more vibrant at the small micro SME level, um, I think it's growing more important by the day. I just wanted to mark that. Yeah, no, Chris, it, it is interesting. I mean, as you know, I'm regarding the economy, I'm I guess I'm probably the perennial optimist. You know, I, 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 I always I hate using the term, but I always tend to see the glass has been half full rather than half empty. And one of the reasons for that is because, uh, you know, like you attending something like that last night, I get out to a lot of stuff. I attend a lot of events. I speak at a lot of stuff. And one thing I really enjoy about all of that is talking to people finding out you know what's happening on the ground in different sectors and so on and the one thing that always strikes me and i was in dungarvan this morning talking to a few people involved in the construction industry for example it's just the the nature of the entrepreneur they just keep doing it uh, they change the way they're doing it they do different things but this entrepreneurial spirit is just incredible and uh, I, I really think it has to be applauded and admired because it is what keeps the economy going. It is what creates employment. So I, it, it's that, I guess, that innate sense of um, entrepreneurship that characterizes many people just makes me, uh, as I say, perennially optimistic about prospects for the Irish economy. But, you know, obviously what happens in the multinational sector is just so important, but it is also so important that the other domestic components of the economy are as vibrant as possible. I'd, I'd just like to ask you, to talking to those diaspora living in London, two things really. One is uh, we have this constant debate about the state of the UK economy, and uh, I tend to have a slightly more 
upbeat faraway cows have green horns or whatever they say that's that's my phrase my term um i have that slightly upbeat view because every time i go to london i just get this sense of vibrancy and I, I love going there to be honest it makes me feel good new york actually has the same effect on me so one i'd like to just ask you about that and secondly how do the how does the diaspora view ireland from afar well on the uk it was really really interesting to talk to these people because the subject of the talk was really a 20 minute state of the world address the sort of thing that you and i do quite a lot of and I called the talk the year of the vote, something you and I have talked about a lot about the importance of geopolitics this year, and in particular, the importance of elections. We think that this year alone, something like 2 billion people roughly will go to the polls this year. You could actually call it the years of the vote, because over the next two years, one third of the world's population is going to the polls. It's going to be the most consequential two years for global democracy, given the nature of many of those elections, not least Donald Trump and all that good stuff. And so therefore, talking about geopolitics, we got into Russia being on the advance in Ukraine, Putin is starting to win, his troops are gaining more territory by the day. We talked about China, where there is a whole range of interesting and quite sinister stuff going on, whether that would make Xi Jinping more or less likely to invade Taiwan. And then there is the state of the UK itself, which, if anything, they were more pessimistic than me. And uh, they were acutely conscious of something that I've realized. If you go to London, you'll get a very upbeat feel. Because the people that I was speaking to, this Irish diaspora last night, were very upbeat about their own prospects, but very gloomy about the state of the world, very gloomy about the state of the UK. So in a way, it's, it's, it's a typical opinion poll that we're getting out of the United States at the moment. People talk about their own prospects in the, in the United States in a very upbeat way, but they're very gloomy about the country. And there's something of a tension between those two points of view in the United States. And Chris, you, what driving that pessimism? I think 15 years of no growth, 15 okay. years of a flatlining economy, no growth in living standards for the population as a whole. The, the people I was speaking to last night are very, very aware of the country that they're living in. And, and notwithstanding the fact that the companies that they're building, that they're involved with, uh, they're working for, that they're owning, doing very well. And generally speaking, these, these people were very successful entrepreneurs last night in a very successful city, London. They're all conscious that London is not the UK. It's a big part of it, but it's also a very different part of the UK. We talked about British politics a lot in the drinks afterwards. And I was struck by... Uh, how much they are aware that different bits of the UK are nowhere near as vibrant as is London. So it was it was a mixed bag, and the, 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 they're quite gloomy about the UK's prospects, whoever wins the next election. It was striking that a lot of people said, look, it really doesn't matter who, who's going to win the next election. We just need some policies to get this country working again. Nothing works in the UK anymore. They repeated my own mantra back at me. And they see nothing from any of the political parties that suggest there are going to be any decent policy, well thought out policy initiatives to get the country growing again. So that they were quite pessimistic from that political economic perspective. Uh, in terms of, of Ireland, um, some of them were recent arrivals in London. Many of them had been living in, in London and the southeast of England for, for many, many years. But of course, very in touch with Ireland, and they're conscious of just how well Ireland is doing. Um, 
But one of the things, of course, that they are aware of is that um, the rise of Sinn Féin. And uh, somebody actually asked me, what would you rather, a Sinn Féin government or a Donald Trump presidency? You can have one or the other. What would you choose? <laughs> I didn't know how to answer that question. I, I'd go for Trump personally. Well, I I, I refuse. I kick for touch on that one. Um, it's a, but it's a, it's an interesting thought experiment, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. So they're ve- they're very aware of the rise of Sinn Fein, and they're very aware of the uh, reason for the rise of Sinn Fein. There are lots of them, but the number one, of course, is the housing crisis. And they all made the point to me: well, the UK has got just a big a housing crisis as Ireland. And uh, so have many other countries. It's not just an Irish phenomena. And so I think that The Economist actually this week t- uh, has a great article on why nobody is going to vote Tory in the next general election, or certainly nobody under the age of, of 65. And this is a great quote which summarizes why younger people in the UK have been turned off the Tories. And here, here's the quote Nothing has turned younger Britons off the Tories more than housing. Now, that could easily be nothing has turned more the younger Irish people off Fine Gael, Fine Gael, I mean, you could just substitute. Oh, yeah. the, the, and so it's another reminder uh, of something that you and I have talked about for months now, which is that the housing crisis is real in Ireland. The housing crisis is real in the UK, but therein lies the rub. It's a global phenomena present in many countries, not just the UK and Ireland. And anybody that pretends that it's going to be easy to solve is uh, essentially being populist. In a way, this is the modern definition of populism, promising to fix the housing crisis. Everybody is trying to fix it and everybody is failing. And uh, good luck to anybody that tries. That's not to deny that one exists, of course. It does, but it does exist globally and it's proving very difficult to solve. So there's a lot of discussion about that. So it was, it was interesting to get these different perspectives. Some of them reflected my own thoughts. And frankly, I learned a lot as well. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay. Interesting you should talk about the Economist piece on housing in the UK. Uh, the chief executive of Cairn Homes, a guy called Michael Stanley, uh, came out yesterday with some very strong comments about the housing sector. He said that the Irish economy is being destroyed by a lack of housing. And he, he cites statistics showing that home ownership rates among 25 to 39-year-olds, which was once considered a prime home-owning age, had dwindled to just 7%. And he goes on to say that we are an affluent society, 
But this feels like the mid-1980s when people were leaving here because we had no work. These kids are leaving because there is no housing. But I don't know where they're going, Jim, because they're going to countries that have... Yeah, but that's got a housing problem as well. But it gets a climate. Well, that's not housing. Climate is different to housing. Yeah, but but if if okay, if you're in Australia or Ireland, what are you going to do? Live in a tent or live live no, live outdoors? You're, you're in Australia. Well, you could. You're in Australia or, or that's your choice. Australia or Ireland. Uh, housing difficulties in both countries. Uh, would you prefer to be in the wet, dark misery here most of the time, or sunshine? Um, Foster's beer in Australia. Well, I don't know about Foster's, Jim. It's absolute gank. Um, but, <laughs> it's <mock>. uh, <laughs> uh, it's the choice you've made. Yes, it a, is. But that's yeah. those those statistics about young people. Again, they're repeated in this week's Economist. They say yeah. that currently less than one third of people under thirty own their own homes. A generation ago, it was over half of people under thirty owned their own homes. So, where you can say quote these statistics, they might be a bit more, they might be a bit less, but they're all in the same ballpark, Jim. All of these different countries have different and very similar sorts of housing problems. And again, I make the point is that that's not to diminish the scale of the problem or to say that it's not a problem. It really is. But it's proving extremely hard to solve. The Economist has a one-sentence explanation for it. It's not supply and demand. It's not interest rates. All those things that we ask about. In a throwaway remark, I suspect it wasn't totally serious. It suggests that the thing that has caused the housing crisis more than any other factor is NIMBYism and that the country is just not allowed to build new homes, even though it must do, even though it wants to do. And it's the traditional Tory voter that is stopping from houses being built. The situation, of course, is more nuanced and more complex than that. But NIMBYism, of course, as we know, as we have discussed, is present in Ireland. And, of course, yeah. the irony being that the, pro- the the party that promises the most to solve the housing crisis is as bad at NIMBYism or as a promoter of NIMBYism as much, if not more, than any other political party. It's well, Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin yeah. people before profit and certain mm. members of the Labour Party have just perennial objectors to housing developments, that there is no doubt about that. So, yeah, that there is a huge irony there, but it, it is an absolute fact. There is no doubt about that. I, I have uh, two sons, and so many of their friends are now gone to Australia. In fact, one of my younger son's best friends and his girlfriend are leaving this weekend to go to Australia. Uh, they're going for a couple of years, at least initially, you know, hopefully, uh, a lot of young people like that will come back into the country because the guy has a good education, has a good job, um, and has many reasons why he's going. But I guess one of the reasons is because the sense that how, in the name of God, are you going to get on the housing market in Dublin, particularly living in the area where you grew up and where your parents lived? You know, it's 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 a huge problem. Uh, and I have to say, um, I would 100% agree with what Michael Stanley and Karen Holmes was saying. And um, I just wish that our authorities gave it the sort of um, urgency as an issue that it actually requires. And it's it's tackling stuff like nimbyism. It's tackling stuff like planning. It is tackling stuff like the funding of development. Um, and it's it's tackling stuff like the government becoming much more interventionist from a, fi- a financing point of view r- rather than any other perspective. So, uh, the, so just so much that does need to happen to uh, give the sector the capacity it needs to deliver the number of houses that we actually need. 
Okay, Jim, enough on housing. We've done that one to death enough times. There's been some important inflation data out of Europe, dreadful inflation data, really appallingly much higher than expected. It's caused a big rethink and collapse in financial markets. Is that oh, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Eurozone inflation came in at 2.6%. Oh, my God. The market had been expecting 25 Disaster. No, it's desperate. Absolutely. It's, 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 it just shows, once again, Chris, the bloody stupidity of market participants. What is the difference you between 2.5 and 2.6, Jim? In reality. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, for God's sake. It's total bull, to be honest. Mm. Uh, German inflation fell from 2.9 to 2.5, and Irish inflation, the HICP measure, that's the Harmonized Index of Consumer Prices, the EU measure, is down at 2.2%. So listen, uh, despite that rubbish about market reaction to the Eurozone inflation data, uh, the bottom line is that actually, you know, inflation everywhere is still trending down. And yesterday we got the measure that the Federal Reserve looks most closely at, which is the personal consumption expenditure price index. It increased by 0.3% in January, excluding food and energy, increased by 0.4%, pretty much in line with market expectations and does suggest a reasonably well-behaved inflation backdrop. Um, today in the States, we got the manufacturing PMI um, and it fell from 49.5 to 47.8, which is quite weak. Okay. And, um, you know, the market reaction to that immediately is, well, this means the Fed is going to cut interest rates sooner again. And bond yields have fallen a little bit. I mean, this well, I guess Chris, we worked in markets together and separately for a number of years, and we saw the day to day volatility and how the markets react to news. I guess that's what makes the markets, isn't it? When I was a graduate student in economics, and a lot of my uh, peers that had left university after their first degree, um, had, a lot of them had gone into the city. It was the nineteen eighties, and I was chatting in a pub with a friend of mine who was working for a big American investment bank in London. And in those days, just as today, the markets could only ever think about one thing at a time. Uh, today, in fairness to markets, they can think about two things. They can think about interest rates and they can think about AI, but that's about it. Those are the two things that are driving markets today. Back then, go figure, it was something called the weekly print of US money supply statistics, yeah. something that nobody looks at at all today. But markets were moved all over the place back then. And Tony asked me in the pub, he said, we, we sit there on the trading floor. I'm a market maker in equities. And we if the money supply numbers come out strong, we sell. And if the money supply numbers come out weak, we buy. Chris, can you tell me why I'm doing this? I'm making loads of money doing it, but what the hell's going on? So as a good wannabe pretentious academic economist i did two things i explained to him why i thought that was happening and inevitably that was actually the connection to today's obsession the connection that we assumed back then between money supply and interest rates we've forgotten all that good stuff as well but the second thing i did which was in my head i didn't actually say this to him was that this is ridiculous the idea that you should be moving around prices of stock markets on the basis of these very flaky, dubi dubious, dodgy numbers, that you should be fixated just on one number. There should be a whole range of da -da -da -da, all those logical, very sensible arguments for why stock markets should, rather than 
other reasons why they go up or down. So I was very sniffy, and, and I said to myself, there's no way this man is going to be able to continue making a living doing this kind of crazy stuff. I was very, very snobbish about about uh, the, the way in which markets operated. And I think that explains today, Jim, why I live in a very modest house, and Tony now lives in a sprawling estate in the hills above Nice. <laughs> well, there you are, Chris. Those are the markets. Uh, you, you remind me of the excitement um, in the dealing room where we worked together when M3 was published in Germany. Yes, absolutely. Those days are long gone, Jim. Thank Those God. days are long gone, absolutely. Chris, uh, my final topic um, is the election of George Galloway in the Rochdale by-election. Um, Labour didn't have a candidate for anti-Semitic reasons. Um, the independent candidate came in second. The Tories came in at 11%. Absolutely disastrous election. Labour didn't have a candidate. Disastrous election for the Tories. The Lib Dems, a disastrous election. Uh, but um, I'm kind of interested in the George Galloway thing. This is the third party he has been elected for. Um, he was elected for the Labour Party. Was it Reform Party? and also Something like that. Now the Workers' Party. And, um, you know, I, I heard analysts on radio this morning saying oh this is terrible blah 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 and and it just struck me listen there's going to be a general election in the uk within 12 months labor will run a credible candidate and will win that seat back so what's the big deal about a nutcase like galloway getting elected well it starts with the fact that thousands of people voted for him and frankly i find that very hard to understand the man is odious the policies that he espouses are ridiculous the only person he ever represents is is himself and any policy that he proposes is pure purely populist i believe myself that he doesn't believe in anything very much other than george galloway and that for example he has hijacked the gaza issue in the way that the snp has for purely political reasons rather than a humane uh, driven stance on the policy. Hijacking things like this for party political reasons or for personal political reasons is nothing short of shocking. But he's got a long track record of being a, a terrible, terrible man, in my opinion. And the fact that he is now going to be sitting in the House of Commons beggars belief. It's just another way in which the British political system has let its people down. The fact that he could well be voted out the next time around should Labour bother its ass to actually field a proper candidate this time, um, I think ignores a very simple historical precedent set by somebody else who's never been in Parliament. But because he was given the oxygen of publicity by the media, by the BBC even, and was generally even better than Galloway at promoting his odious views, he became despite never having won an election to the British Parliament, the most consequential British politician of his generation, and that was Nigel Farage. So I certainly hope that uh, Galloway doesn't follow in Farage's footsteps in being the successful politician in reorienting British policy. We know what Farage was responsible for and what he still wants to achieve in Britain. So I think it's a very sad day for British politics. I think it's a very sad day for Britain. And as I say, just another way in which the system has let the people down. Okay, interesting. Um, Chris, I would just, my parting comment here as we head into the weekend is that um, the great news that a firm down in Waterford, Sure Engineering, employing 1,500 people 
has just become the jersey sponsor for Waterford GAA. I'm sure that makes your weekend. It sure makes mine. Is that a lacrosse team? <laughs> Listen, Chris, have a great... Oh, by the way, actually, sorry, sorry, sorry. Talking about lacrosse, you, you never made reference to the rugby match last weekend. Um, I, I was I was in bed with a cold. Did something happen? <laughs> have a great weekend, Jim. And you, Chris. Good luck. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.